Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 11. We come to letter T in the life of Christ, A through Z. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And as we'll see, the Gospel of John singles out seven specific miracles during the ministry of Christ that he John focuses on that validate who Jesus claimed to be and in fact is. And when you look at those miracles, they get more and more spectacular. The first one was water into wine. The seventh one is this one in John chapter 11. Jesus uh, raises, and, and Lazarus, uh, Pat, was dead. And he was graveyard dead. He, he was dead for four days. This wasn't clinical death where your heart stops beating for three minutes and you're able to revive you or something. This was this guy was gone. There's no no coming back from this. And so we're going to see if you're interested in life after death, you need to get it from Jesus. You need to get it from the one who predicted his own sacrificial death to pay our sin debt and who in fact predicted his physical resurrection. And the fact that Jesus has power over life and death is validated here in John chapter 11. Now, it's nice to have Pat here. It's a long drive from New Mexico, but you can do it. Every Sunday from now on, right? <laughs> nah, come on, it's, it's well worth it. And then uh, we've got some of our heroes up here. We're going to pray for teachability and for troops. And that good-looking soldier here, that, looked fam- that guy looked familiar, Pat? It's a good-looking soldier there. Thank you. <laughs> and so we're honored to have Cade Fleming with us today, too. So we thank you for your service, my man. Uh, but let's pray that the, the spirit who inspired this text would illumine it so we can understand it and believe it, apply it, and that um, I would not get in the way of that process at all in your heart and life. And let's pray in addition for teachability. Let's pray for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Ben, if you would lead us in prayer in that direction, okay? Amen. Thank you. Okay, to warm up our capacity for abstract thought, three quick cartoons. Here's a guy just beginning his career at some big company. Let's say it's Shank, Irwin, Conant, and Williamson, something like that. IBM, Coca-Cola. And his supervisor says, my company does not discriminate on the basis of religion. Worshiping me is totally voluntary. (laughs) Number two, grandma's talking to granddaughter and... um, Granddaughter is showing off her cell phone, and Grandma says, wireless communication is nothing new. I've been praying for 75 years. And finally, I like this one. Here's a potential seminary student talking to somebody, saying, I'm enrolling in seminary college so I can learn about miracles. We're going to look at the superlative miracle of the seven recorded leading to the resurrection of Jesus, the seventh one at the raising of Lazarus. Today, so I'm going to go to seminary college so I can learn about miracles, like how to pay off my student loans. Uh, this is a long passage. I think it preaches itself. I'm going to try to stay out of the way and shed some light on a few things here and there. Uh, and for time, we're not going to go through the whole A through Z or A through T to review today. Just realize we've got this. We've got one Savior. We've got four Gospels. We've got 26 major events. This system doesn't cover everything that's critical, but I think it does a nice synthetic job. And we're looking at T, which stands for tomb traumatized. And we're talking about the tomb of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus coming uh, out of the dead after being uh, dead for four days. And the passage breaks down like this. We have first the death of Lazarus, then the raising of Lazarus, and then the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, uh, or resuscitation of Lazarus. So I think that's pretty clear. Uh and as spectacular as this miracle is, Julie Miller, this is a spectacular miracle. Even more amazing is in the aftermath, we're going to find out, as someone said uh, once, um, truth is stranger than fiction. You ever heard that statement? The truth is stranger than fiction. The raising of Lazarus from the dead by Jesus after he's dead, Caitlin, for four days, catalyzes both saving faith in some and unbelievable disbelief in others, the same guy, the same miracle, you can't do it in a laboratory, you can't reproduce it, and we're told many, meaning a good many, not two or three, maybe a hundred, came to saving faith because they said, that's got to validate who Jesus claims to be. But the vast majority of those who saw this happen uh, embrace 
a more intractable disbelief. They're not going to believe no matter what happens. Okay? So let's look at the death of Lazarus, and let's start with the setting. And really, to understand the setting, we need to go back to where we left off last time a little bit. So go back to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is stoning stopped. Every time the religious leaders try to stone Jesus, Kylene, he's claimed to be God again. Because that's blasphemy in their minds for a human being to claim to be God. Of course, in his case, it's actually real. But go back to chapter 10, verse 27. After making sure he celebrated Hanukkah in December of 32 AD in Jerusalem, even though it's dangerous for him to be there, he's kind of insulted by the implication he hasn't been clear about who he is. If you're the Christ, verse 24, the end of verse 24, tell us plainly. You haven't told us clearly enough. Now, the people asking that don't believe, won't believe, and just want him on the record as having say, said it again so they can use it against him at his trial. But the implication is you haven't done enough for us, Jesus. Uh, God will give enough light to those who are going to come to faith. They're not going to miss it because of lack of information. They will get what they need. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I told you, and all y'all do not believe. That's the problem. You just reject what I'm telling you. And what I'm doing, the works I do, in my Father's name, these testify of me, especially these special sign miracles that John points out. But you, all y'all, all the people asking the insulting question, you haven't shown us enough. Do you really think you're the Christ? They know he thinks he's the Christ. In fact, they've said anybody who believes he's the Christ is going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. That's his. That's what he's saying about himself. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give everlasting life to them. You want everlasting life? There's only one person you can get it from. And it's not the Baptist church or the Presbyterian church or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church. It's certainly not Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. I give everlasting life to them, to his sheep, the ones who believe. And they will never, ever, never not perish. It's double negative, which means emphatic negation. There's no way they can perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We said we had a double-fisted security if that's, uh, um, that's Connor as a believer, Jesus says in verse 28, you're in his, his hand. And then verse 29, Jesus says, my father, God the father, Jesus is God the son, who has given them to me is greater than all who would like to try to snatch them out of Jesus' hand. And they wouldn't be able to do that anyway. And no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So you got this double-fisted security, you know. And if you were to raise your child and say, as they became kind of verbal, you may or may not be my child. I'll tell you based on your behavior. I'm going to watch you closely. And unless you kind of jump through my hoops, then and only then I'll let you know if you're really my child. Would anybody do that to a kid? Would anybody say that's a psychologically healthy way to rear a kid? No way, you know. So, you know, you have objective assurance based on the promises of the Savior then you have subjective assurance. You have fruit in my life is a secondary assurance. The Spirit's doing some stuff in my life. But you start not looking at yourself for salvation and not looking at yourself for assurance. If, you, you're, if you're a self-righteous jerk, you can be unregenerate and look at yourself and convince yourself you must be saved because you show up for prayer meeting consistently. Or if you're like most of us, maybe too hard on yourselves, you're always going to find something that needs some work. So there's two aspects of salvation Jesus seems to have no problem emphasizing the objective. I say, if you're a believer, you're with me. That's what he says to the terrorist on the cross. That's what he's saying here, just theologically. My sheep are in my hand. My sheep are in the Father's hand. That's a double-fisted security. And nobody, no force can snatch them out of that kind of situation. I and the Father are one in the same in our characteristics, in our essence. Look what happens. The Jews who said, hey, we're not sure what you're saying about yourself. You're the Christ. Tell us clearly. The Jews, Jewish leaders, picked up stones again. Every time they pick up stones to stone him, he's just claimed to be God in human form again. That's blasphemy in their minds. Uh, to stone him. And Jesus said, I've showed you many good works from the Father, all of which confirm that I'm the Christ. For which are you stoning me? And the Jewish leaders said, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Why? What did he just say in verse 30? I and the Father are one and the same in essence and character and characteristics, have all the same attributes, not because of a good work, because of a blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Keep going. Up down to verse 37. 
We're kind of walking into the setting of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus says, if I do not do the works, the kind of miracles that only the Father would commission and allow me to do, don't believe me. My claims, I'm the Christ. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, what I'm saying about myself, believe the works. He's saying, what I'm doing validates what I'm saying. So you, you look at one or both of them, they all fit together. So you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they all repented and came to saving faith. Wouldn't it be nice? Now, if you were making this up later, John, the Gospel, John may be written as early as 69, may have been written as late as 90, uh, you know, decades after. If you're making this up, and it, none of it's true anyway, you'd probably have them all bow down and kneel. But he says here, therefore they were seeking all the more to seize him, and they eluded, he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan River to the place where John the Baptist, back in chapter 1, was first baptizing, and Jesus is staying there. So here's our one of our base maps here. And this area in South Israel is called Judea. Oklahoma is like an area. It's a state. Judea is an area. And you have cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Jericho. But now we're going out of Jewish territory across the river to what's called the country of Jordan now. And that's the place where John the Baptist was initially baptizing. Now, by the way, go back to chapter 1 real quick. Notice John chapter 1, verse 6, in this magnificent prologue to this gospel. And I've often said, you know, Ben, if you gave somebody a Bible, they were interested in, in the Bible, and you gave them uh, maybe a copy of the gospel of John and said, read the, read the gospel of John. And the person never heard anything about Christianity in any organized sense. And it says, the gospel according to John, across the top of that page. And you talk about, in the beginning was the word and all this, and you, you wouldn't be sure what that was. But you would be sure when you got to the sixth verse of the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, when the text says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. You know what you say? That's the John, the Gospel according to John. It's got to be John. It's not. The Gospel according to John is John the Apostle. The John mentioned in one six is John the Baptist. And Cade, he wasn't a Baptist, okay? He was Jewish. He was a Jewish prophet who baptized people. Now watch this. There came a man sent from God to testify about the word, the person, and work of Jesus Christ, whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light. That's one of the titles for Jesus. The light, the word, the life. So that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, not John the human author, John the Apostle of this book, the Gospel of John, he was not the light. John the Baptist wasn't the light. He wasn't the Messiah. wasn't the Christ. But he came to testify about the light. He, that is the true light, Jesus, is the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And I love this, man. He was in the world. Jesus through the incarnation, through Christmas, the first Christmas was in the world, and the world had been made through him. He's the creator and sustainer and the consummator of the universe. And the world, by and large, did not know him. He came into his own, the Jewish folk, Jewish people who had scriptures, and most of them didn't receive him. But... Here's the gospel real quick in the gospel of John. As many as received him, no exceptions. Doesn't matter what color, country, culture, denomination, generation. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Pistuo ace anon, which means to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say it, you're, you're the perfect righteous savior. You died for my sins. You rose again and I trust you as my savior. So go back to chapter 10 there. Uh, Jesus has gone back to where John the Baptist was first baptizing, just on the uh, east side of the Jordan River there. You're looking at John 10, 41. Many, and so John has been since arrested and executed, so John's no longer with us. So Jesus goes there because there are still people who have heard John preaching three years ago who are still considering coming to faith, and so Jesus has work to do. And it says many, that, that means a good many, not necessarily a majority, but not two or three, maybe 50 or 100, but a good many, came to Jesus and were saying, while John the Baptist did no miracles, he just preached the gospel, yet everything John said about this man is true. He's, Jesus is closing the loop with these people who heard the gospel before and are now coming to faith. People don't always respond to the gospel the first time they hear it. Sometimes it takes years of reflection. Right? 
So never give up on anybody. And then we're told many believed in him there. So one reason Jesus goes across the river is to get away from the heat, to avoid throwing gasoline on the fire of the hatred of the Jewish leadership before the time happens in, in March and April when he's going to be there for the last week. But secondly, because there's work to do. There are people uh, to to reveal himself to that are ready and willing to believe. Now go to chapter 11, verse 1. Now, while Jesus is on the other side of the river, about a two-day walk from the Jerusalem area, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany is a little village two miles due east of uh, Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives there. Uh, the village of Mary and her Mar- sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord's feet with ointment, wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to Jesus. Uh, you know, They tested him, but he was kind of out of communicado because they had no power power. So they had to send somebody to walk and find Jesus. Uh, Lord, behold, he who you love, that's the word phileo, which you have a, a brotherly fondness for, you know, you're not just seeking his highest good, but they really are tight. They have a, a nice personal friendship, is sick. So that's the problem, right? That's kind of the setting. Now let's look at Jesus' purposeful delay. It's interesting, you know, God's will is not just a what and a how, it's also a when. And it's not always God's will for you to solve or respond to your problems the first time you mention it. That's why persevering prayer is important. But when Jesus heard this, that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said to the apostles there, this sickness is not to end in irreversible biological death. He knows he's going to die, but he also knows he's going to resuscitate it. This is going to be permitted for the glory of God. God can and is glorified by death. Can you think of one good example of that? Look at the back back wall there. And thank Jack Smith for making not one of those, but two of those. You can't see the second one because of the screen. But that cross and that arrow has kind of been the unofficial symbol of TBF. The arrow represents the resurrection, Hal. Um, some people think it means Jesus is the only way, and he is the only way. But on that, since I came up with the symbol, I get to decide what it means. And I'm telling you, the cross is where Jesus paid for our sins. The arrow represents his resurrection. I mean, literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. If you went back in a time machine, you'd see it. This isn't wish fulfillment or a hallucination or something like that. And you've got to have the resurrection to confirm the saving value of the death of Christ because a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the resurrected one, and there's only one of them, can and does for all who believe. So anyway, let's go back. When Jesus heard this news that Lazarus was sick, Jesus says, hey guys, relax, okay? This is not going to be irreducible death, but this is permitted. So the Son of God, Jesus, I thought Jesus never referred himself as the Son of God. You know a place where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God? Steve, where? Right there. That's right. Circle that. If you write in your Bible. Now, some people don't want to write in your Bible. We're just talking about that. I totally respect that. But my my Bible is a playbook, <laughs> right? It's not a museum piece. So uh, I've got some Bibles I haven't written in, but I've got like a 75 Bibles back there. Um, it's hard to read them all at once, but I do the best I can. Um, but this is permitted so that I, the Son of God, would be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister in Lazarus. Uh, it's interesting that specifically in verse 3, the word phileo, which refers to positive emotions, is used about Jesus and Lazarus. But in verse uh, 5, yeah, that's the word agape, agapao is the verb form, which means to seek other people's highest good, which may or may not have anything to do with emotions. And I think he has deep emotional connections with all three of these people, as we're going to see when he weeps at Lazarus's tomb. But it's emphasizing kind of the uh, the baseline, core kind of Christian love we all ought to have for each other, not because we're all OSU fans or because we all, you know, uh, have a lot of similarities and superficial things, but because we all love Jesus, we all love each other in that sense. So when he heard that he was sick, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus then purposely delayed and stayed two days. Now, where is he? He's on the other side of the Jordan River. So he's going to take a two-day walk to get there. So he stays two days, and he walks two days. So he arrives after four days is the idea. So he does that on purpose. Then after this, after that two-day period, and what's he doing? Sitting around? 
He's ministering to these people that, are, that have been waiting for the fulfillment of John the Baptist preaching ministry. Now Jesus is saying, I'm him, and talking to them, interacting with them. Uh, he says to the guys, let's go to Judea. Judea is the region where Jerusalem and Bethany are located. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, that's a bad plan. We don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem. Don't you remember John chapter 10? They didn't say that because it hadn't been written yet, but the events had happened. Rabbi, the Jewish leaders were just seeking to stone you in Jerusalem. We can't get, we can't go to Bethany. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. No, they're going to stone you there. We're going to go back there. Crazy. Jesus said, and he speaks kind of parabolically, parabolically here. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, does the will of God, he's not going to stumble no matter how the world reacts to you. It's faithfulness, not visible success that we ought to be seeking in a Christian life. Because he sees the light of the world, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. I'm not going to ignore the will of God here, even though I realize there are complications for me to be anywhere near Jerusalem. We're going. Verse 11, uh, thus Jesus said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. The Bible mean means what it means by what it says, the way it says it. When Jesus says Lazarus is asleep, it doesn't mean he's asleep. It means he's dead, physically dead. Watch this. Sometimes you can be too literal. The apostles are actually too literal here. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's just taking a nice long nap. Uh, but I'm going, and I may wake him out of sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll recover. So we don't need to go to Jerusalem or anywhere near it. Why go to Bethany? Why put ourselves at risk? Now, and again, if you're, if you're making this up decades later to help start the church, you're not going to have these guys so dense, you know? You're going to smooth over this stuff. The disciples in the Gospels make all kind of goofy mistakes, just like we do, because they really happen, and it's got the ring of truth to it. Now, Jesus, uh, the disciples said, hey, if he's just asleep, no problem. Just let him take care of himself. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death when he said he was asleep, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep, okay? Just so you'll know. So Jesus said, hey guys, sit down. Lazarus is dead. Like, oh great. Well, it's too late now. Why well, do we have to go now? You know, that's probably what they're thinking. But, uh, yeah, you gotta love this. Um, now there is a doctrine which is heretical. That's called soul sleep. You ever heard of, Wendy, you ever heard of soul sleep? There are, are there a few Christian groups. There are a few uh, just uh, wacky theological heresy groups that teach the doctrine of soul sleep, and that says that when you die, you're unconscious, your your soul kind of sleeps until some kind of ultimate judgment day or, or uh, resurrection day. But Scripture doesn't teach that. And let me show you, I think, the two best passages just on the fly to prove that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says physical death is separation of your consciousness, your soul, from your body. Uh, either to a place of blessing, heaven for believers, or a place of punishment for unbelievers. And there's no such thing as the soul sleeping. S- to refer to the death of believers as sleep is just a euphemism for the death of a believer. It's only applied to believers in Scripture. But Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight, right now. But we're of good courage, no matter what happens, and the world doesn't like us and never will, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home, and the King James says face-to-face with, but it literally means at home with the Lord. Jeff, the death of a believer is for the soul to leave the body and for the believer to be instantly in the presence of Jesus Christ. Let me show you another one. Look at Philippians chapter 1, very famous statement Paul makes about physical death. So when Jesus says uh, Lazarus is asleep, he's talking about the death of a believer, and he knows it's a temporary death, right? Four days, and that's uh, it's going to be resuscitation too, not resurrection. We'll talk about the difference in a minute. But look at Philippians 1, 21. Paul's writing this when he's under house arrest in Rome to a church in northern Greece or Macedonia, and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So He's going to take a nap, but he's going to be with the Lord Jesus. Uh, but if I am to live on in the flesh for another five or ten years or whatever, this is going to mean opportunity for fruitful labor for me. 
I don't know which one to choose, and it's not up to him whether to be with the Lord or to be here doing the Lord's work. But I'm hard-pressed in both directions. I can see benefits uh, on both sides of that coin. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. What is that? That's physical death. Your body stays here and is buried or cremated or whatever happens to it. But your soul is absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, departs the body and is with Christ. So go back to John 10. Don't read soul sleep there. Or if you hear somebody preaching soul sleep, that's not what it's talking about. Um, but I'm going to have to uh, contradict most of the commentaries you've read on verse 16. Look at verse 14 again. Lazarus is dead, over and out. And I was glad for your sakes that I was not there when it happened to prevent it, so that you guys may be confirmed in your belief. These guys are already believers. They're already regenerate. But he says you may believe in a more full orb sense, that your faith will be even deeper in me. So let's go to him and deal with this thing. And then verse 16 says, Therefore Thomas, we know him better as Doubting Thomas, even though he's a good guy and does some good things. But isn't it terrible? You do something right, nobody ever remembers. You do something wrong, nobody ever forgets. Yeah. So I'm a pastor who does not categorize anybody I know by the worst thing I'm aware of that they've done. And I follow some of you people around. Or the worst thing I've heard you've done. I just refuse to do that. Now, if there's a pattern there, um, trust but verify kind of thing, but I don't do that. And I think one reason I've been here for 30 years, I don't think you guys do that to me either. So I appreciate that. But watch this. Therefore, Thomas, who later is known as Doubting Thomas, who's called Didymus, the twin, he's one. Of, he's got a twin brother, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go to Bethany, which is just spitting distance from Jerusalem, so that we may die with him. Now, a lot of the commentators are saying, look at that. Thomas is so brave. He's saying, hey, let's go. Jesus wants to go. We may all die, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think that's what's, what's happening there. I'm, I'm very cynical about Thomas here. Sorry. I don't think this is a heroic statement of martyrdom because when Jesus gets arrested at Gethsemane, is Thomas or any of them wanting to be brave martyrs? They all scatter like sheep, don't they? Um, until after the resurrection, these guys don't have that iron backbone. I see this as sarcastic, reluctant concession. Like, we're not going to talk him out of it. We always go wherever he goes. Let's go, and we're all going to get killed. That's, I think, the way he said that. Now, sooner or later, we'll all get together at some fellowship in heaven, and Thomas will be there. Uh, Homer, remember this. Pull him aside and say, what did John mean about you in John eleven sixteen? And we'll find out. And if I'm wrong, I'll be glad to be corrected. But I don't think I'm going to be corrected on that. We're going to, we'll find out. Okay. Okay. Once in Bethany, Jesus supports the faith and the grief of Mary and Martha. So important. When, I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how spiritual you are. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. And if you suffer loss, you're going to grieve. That's the human condition. I don't care how spiritually uh, strong you think you are. Those things happen to real believers. Think of Jesus at Gethsemane. So when Jesus came to Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, was already in the tomb for four days. They, they buried essentially right after they, they died. They didn't wait four days after a funeral. Now, Bethany is spitting distance from Jerusalem. That's what that means in the uh, vernacular, just two miles away, just on the other side of the, the Mount of Olives there. And many of the Jewish leaders... Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are kind of well-connected socially, pretty important strategically as believers to have some kind of light with those people. But many of the Jewish leaders who tried to stone Jesus a few months before came to Mary and Martha in the aftermath of Lazarus' death and burial to console them concerning their brother. Martha, who's the more um, choleric, the more um, activist of the two sisters, um, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, he's on the outskirts of the city, she meets him on the outskirts of the city. And watch this. But Mary, the other sister, stays in the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What that means is, where have you been, big boy? We sent you he was sick. You should have gotten here post-haste, and this wouldn't have happened. You blew it. That's what she's saying. Okay, after we have that meeting with Thomas, the next time we have a big TBF uh, alumni meeting, get Martha. We may as well talk to her too. We're going to ask. Is that essentially what you meant? She said, of course. I'm speaking, you know, not totally responsible. She's in deep grief. 
and she knows Jesus could heal him, and she knows they sent a message to him. Why weren't you here? Why do you wait four days? She's very upset. Uh, you know, the stages of grief are denial, uh, anger, or de- denial, bargaining, anger, a deep pain, and eventual resolution. And everybody goes through there, and sometimes you bounce around. And sometimes, this is my first Christmas season without my mom here. Uh, she was the reason we always drove a thousand miles round trip, you know, somewhere around Christmas every year. And so we're going to have a very unique kind of Christmas. It's not all going to be bad, but it's going to be very different. And, you know, I've, I've thought about that all year, anticipating that. I went, you know, just anticipating, I wonder how I'm going to react to that. So I'm very conscious of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a robot. I don't really have feelings typically. I don't eat, don't sleep, or anything like that. So, um, I'm pretty tough mentally, but I'm just, I'm aware that's probably going to hit me at some point, uh, sooner rather than later. So if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Where you been? Verse 22, but watch this. Even now, hint, hint, I know that whatever you ask of God the Father, He'll give you. What's she saying? You could raise Him back up. Uh, Verse 21, very bad. Verse 22, very good. But she's probably like trying to twist his arm here. And Jesus says, and it sounds like he's teaching theology, and he is, but he's uh, really assuring her that it's all going to be all right. Uh, she says, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The Pharisees taught a chart of Bible prophecies that, that said this. It was real simple. The Jews were living in the present age. There's going to be a time of great trouble for the Jewish people, the time of Jacob's trouble. And then the Messiah is going to show gloriously, put down all the enemies, and the Jews and those who are connected with the Messiah will rule over the world for a long period of time. That's what they're looking for. So she's saying, yeah, I know that after the present age and the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, just as the Messiah comes back, all the dead believers are going to be resurrected. It's all going to work out. But I want him now, you know. Um I, I know he's going to be resurrected in the last day. Now, here's our New Testament chart of Bible prophecy. don't have time to analyze it in great detail, but let me just say that what the Pharisees had taught about future things was present age before Jesus, period of great trouble, glorious appearing of the Messiah from heaven, and resurrection. Uh, what we would say as New Testament Christians, how hey, you left out the cross and the church age, and for those of us, with the, with the privilege of living in the church age, we're going to be resurrected, receive our resurrection body. Our consciousness goes to be with the Lord, but we don't get a resurrection body until the rapture event. Not just the living folks, but all of us will receive, who have died before the rapture, get our resurrection body uh, in connection with that event. But everything the Old Testament said about the glorious appearing second advent and then the resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints is going to happen there. So he's alluding to that. Uh, and she says, I know that. I've, you know, I go to synagogue. I, I know how to chart that out. But there's more. Verse 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I'm the source of resurrection. I'm the issue of resurrection and eternal life. That's not bios, biology. That's Zoe. That's eternal spiritual life. The one who believes in me will live even when he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Do you believe this? And she hits a home run. And again, this title Christ is all over the place. Once you realize how important it is, you see it everywhere. It's not his last name. It's one of his most important titles. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one from the God the Father to be the Lamb of God and ultimately the Lion of God to pay for our sin and then to welcome us into the eternal kingdom. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now notice verse 25 is a very significant title Jesus applies to himself. And in the same way, the Gospel of John, seven specific miracles leading up to the last week in the resurrection. The Gospel of John also selectively calls, calls out seven different things Jesus claims about himself as far as special titles. He says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the vine, and here we've got I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? I believe you're the Christ. I know that's going to happen. And she's affirming her faith in him. Now look at verse 28. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. He's on the outskirts of town. Martha goes in. Mary's in the house mourning, reflecting. Uh, Martha says, hey, you know, he's here. And when she heard it, when Mary heard Jesus was was in town, 
Or on the outskirts and coming this way, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus was not yet into the village itself, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jewish leaders who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, uh, they followed her, supporting that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Right. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? They've gotten together and said, when he shows up, we're going to let him have it. Okay. Uh, again, you wouldn't make it up. This is, this is what happened. And this is the way people are, uh, when they've had great loss, you know. Uh, and you gotta let, let them vent. You gotta let them say what's in there and get it out. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jewish leaders who came with her also weeping, because um, they all love these people, uh, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This idea that Jesus is a robot, or that real spiritual people are robots is not true. And said, uh, where have you laid him? He knows, but he wants to make sure they know he's going to know where it is. And they said, Lord, come and see. And then it says, Jesus wept. Now that's the shortest verse in the English Bible. And so some of us as Southern Baptists who were trained, we had to have a, a couple of memorized verses to get uh, meals at fellowships and stuff like that. That was a lot of our favorite Bible verse, you know, Jesus wept. Okay, start a Bible verse if you want some apple pie or chocolate pie. Jesus wept, you know. John 11.35. Click, you know, uh, that's the way to do that. So the Jewish leaders were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man, let's use this as a chance to second guess, who opened the eyes of the blind back in John 9, uh, have kept this man from dying. So, you know, every pastor gets second guessed a certain amount, and uh, Jesus got second guessed too, so it kind of comes with the territory, I guess, right? Um, let's look at the raising of Lazarus. Verse 38 through 44. This is the good part. So Jesus came, Jesus again being deeply moved. Uh, one commentator actually said the reason that Jesus wept here because he felt so sorry for Lazarus that he's going to bring him back to his bed of tears. And I've never thought about that one. I don't think that's what it is. I think he's just emotionally connecting with the horrors of death. You know, it's a weird thing, but, uh, you know, I was the first generation of American man who actually had to be in the delivery room and watch this thing happen. My dad, when it, he was a World War II vet, but he got nowhere near the delivery room. He's smoking cigars, you know, down the hall. And you, you see childbirth, and it's painful. Right, Sherry? It, it's not pretty. And most of the time, death is painful, and it's not pretty. You, know, you kind of have that, you know, that bell curve of when you're 25 and you think you're bulletproof. But when you deal with real life, you deal with this stuff all the time. And Jesus enters into the fact this is a death is a sad thing. God didn't create the system so it would have all the sin and the evil and the cancer and child molesters and the pornography and abortions and the violent crime and unnecessary warfare and, and death. That, that wasn't part of the plan, you know, for Adam and Eve. They rebelled metaphysically, ruins the whole system. God will permit evil because you are going to have evil if you have people making real choices. He's going to defeat evil. He will permanently quarantine evil. He's going to get us to the best of all possible universes, Revelation 21 and following. But right now, especially with the shadow of the cross, very much in Jesus' mind, he's not very far away from his own death here. I think he's just honestly, emotionally reacting to this. And I don't I don't shed a lot of tears myself. I don't cry very often, but um, I, I have a few times. And I don't think that's a sign of spiritual weakness necessarily at all. And certainly not here. So anyway, Jesus being deeply moved came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. Stone was lying against it. He said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said, Lord, you can't do that. Every good man has women correcting him, right, all the time. Um, I mean, even the Lord Jesus, you know. Uh, remove the stone. Can't do that. It's going to stink. It's going to ruin this property values in the whole, whole residential area, right? Um by now there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. After we deal with that, next problem. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, and he prays out loud, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. So he's still concerned about these Jewish leaders that are here as witnesses trying to shine all the lights possible to them. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And then I love the way John describes this. Verse 44, John writing his gospel says, the man who had died, not a different guy named Lazarus. And there were a lot of people named Lazarus back then, but not that, any, any of those people. The guy who's been dead for four days, who's wrapped up like a mummy, comes bounding out, hand and foot, with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around the cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. That's supernatural resuscitation. Resurrection, like what Jesus experienced on Easter, was a dead body, consciousness has left, going back into the dead body, and the dead body be supernaturally transformed into a resurrection body. Okay, This isn't what's happening here. Lazarus has been dead. Spirit goes back into his physical body. The spirit, the physical body is not supernaturally transformed into a spiritual body, a resurrection body. It's just his old physical body. So if he had a bad hairline, he still has got a bad, bad hairline. And the cool thing about my resurrection body, I'm going to have a full head of hair. I'm going to be carrying a comb around for like the first eon or so. So like what I got. I actually need it now. You know. So this is an amazing miracle, but it's not resurrection. It's resuscitation, supernatural resuscitation, right? Um, yeah. Now let's talk about that. As I said, this is the seventh and most important of the sign miracles that John focuses on. You look at the Gospel of John, you have a purpose statement. Many other things Jesus also did, did, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, believing you have life in his name. Introduction, conclusion, seven signs, climaxing with chapter 11, raising a Lazarus. The upper room discourse, how do you fellowship with Jesus when he's not physically walking around with you anymore? And what's the ultimate sign? His resurrection after paying for our sins on the cross. So we're looking at this section of the Gospel of John. We're looking at that miracle here. And Jesus and John just stack up the evidence, which means everybody's going to believe if they read the evidence, right? No. But it means some will, and it's perfectly correct to use evidential apologetics to prove the claims of Jesus, because John does in his whole book. It's the whole premise of the book, actually. And so you see these seven miracles. So you need to realize this is part of a sequence that's written with great specific intention. And let's look at the aftermath. Harder to believe than even the miracle. I've never had a, I've never had a problem believing in the biblical miracles. I, uh, my mother uh, trained me to respect Scripture even before I could read it. And I've, I've never had a problem with miracles. I have no doubt that uh, Jesus walked on the water, that Jesus healed this guy. He was dead for four days. I don't have a problem with that. Some people have a problem with that. But if the first first verse in the Bible is correct, then everything else makes sense. If God created the universe out of nothing, uh, he could probably do walk on the water, you know, or he probably could raise somebody uh, uh, from life to life again. But anyway, look at the aftermath. Many average people, verse 45, therefore many, a good many, not two or three, but maybe a hundred or so, of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. That's saving faith. But some of the Jews didn't believe, and they go tattle to the Pharisees two miles away in Jerusalem and told them the things Jesus had done. You're not going to believe what he did now. Now we've got a lot of explaining to do. But it's okay with them because they've got an explanation of Jesus that allows them to explain anything, Cade, because the Jewish leaders have decided Jesus was a satanically possessed false prophet. They're just saying Satan's just counterfeiting this. The guy looked like he was dead, but he wasn't really dead, and Satan kind of connected the, the buttons and, and got Lazarus so he could walk again or whatever. Verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened an emergency session in Jerusalem of the Sanhedrin. We're saying, what are we doing? What are, which means, what are we going to do now? This guy's performing many signs. He just healed a guy we all know personally. We can't deny that. Um, if we let him go on, if we, if we let him uh, go on like this, all men will believe in him. Is that true? That's what they said. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, almost every time I do a funeral, I read parts of John 11. And there have been a couple of times I've just thought, Lord, just this once, not for, for me to get eagle, but just this once, would you let that person kind of tap on the, on the, on the coffin uh, from the inside? And let's just open it up and just resuscitate him just once. Because wouldn't everybody believe if that happened in Little Duncan, Oklahoma, that'd be on CNN, right? They'd probably get it wrong, but uh, <laughs> no, it would not mean everybody would believe because Jesus does it, and not everybody believes. Some of them tattle; they don't believe, and the leaders they don't care. They just got to come up with a cover story. 
He says, hey, if we go on like this, everybody's going to believe in them. And the, the Romans who occupy us will come and take away our place in our nation. They're going to kind of, you know, kind of hack us up. But one of them, Caiaphas, we're going to go to his house, his office suite, uh, next May in, in Jerusalem, who was the high priest that year, said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you take into account it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That almost sounds like he's talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He's not. He's saying, look, we got to take him out. We're going to have to make sure he gets killed because it's better for him to die and the status quo to stay the same than for him to get prominence and the Romans to take, put us all out of business. Okay, That's what that means. And yet he's speaking better than he knows because John says, ironically, you can interpret what he said to be the correct truth, that Jesus died for the sins of the nation, died for the sins of the world. And he's saying, it's expedient for us to have him killed so the Romans won't put us out of business and destroy our temple and destroy our, our nation. Now, verse 51, he did not say this on his own initiative because ultimately he was being a prophet without knowing it, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied, in effect, by using that wording that Jesus was going to die for the nation. But that's not what he meant, but that's one way the words could be taken. So just uh, the irony, if he says something that sounds good, but it really wasn't. Uh, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles like us living in Oklahoma. We're not Jewish in our background, but we're believers and part of that family now. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It went from, you know, kind of level two priority to level one priority. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, they stayed with the disciples. He gets out of the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. Now the Passover, where he is going to be crucified, of the Jews was very near now, and many came up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus. They'd heard he'd, something had happened in Bethany. He'd been in and around the area. They're hoping to see him. The crowds were, but he's not there. He's temporarily withdrawn. And... Um, People were saying the buzz was, what do you think? Is he going to show up for the Passover at all? Which was a required feast. And of course he does show up when he's needed to. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given strict orders. If anyone knew where he was, they were to be report that to them so that they could seize him and begin the big plan, the last phase, to have him killed. So we're looking at this incredible passage, which I love so much, the raising of Lazarus. And I found a quote from Warren Wearsby. Anybody know who Warren Wearsby is? He's a was a commentator and a pastor in the like 70s, 80s, 90s. And he says this, if Jesus Christ can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to essentially nothing. I mean, we're claiming Jesus raised this guy from being dead for four days. Does that mean that Christians never got, had to go to funerals because Jesus does that routinely? No, this is a miracle. It's a very unique miracle. But And it's not the same thing as his own resurrection, but it's related. You're seeing the power of Jesus over death. Take this to heart. Truth is stranger than fiction. Spiritually hardened people, like the Jewish leadership and the folks tattling on Jesus here, can and will explain away any and all evidence that Jesus is the Christ, whereas spiritually open people can move from evidence to true saving faith. And it actually gets worse if that's possible, they're planning to kill him because he raised Lazarus. But look what happens in chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. We're almost done. Um, we're uh, six days before the Passover now in chapter 12. Jesus goes back and visits Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he's still alive, obviously. But look what happens in verse 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 12. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. He's right in the city of Jerusalem, and specifically in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but so that they might also see Lazarus, because they heard the rumor that Jesus had resuscitated Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, the guy who was raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. It's like, oh my goodness, Jesus is getting so much good publicity, Jamie, because he raised Lazarus from the dead, and now you can actually go, if you're in Jerusalem, you can take a short walk and see Lazarus, and he's really alive, and everybody knows he was dead. They're saying, you know what? In addition to killing Jesus, we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. These are the religious leaders. This is cold. This is hard. You know, no amount of light is going to change these folks. And yet, you know, Jesus goes out of his way uh, to share that. Yeah, the raising of Lazarus both catalyzed saving faith in some, but 
unbelievable disbelief in others. But here's, here's the good news. We actually have a photograph of this event. It's, actually, it's not a photograph. It's an artist's representation. Might look something like that. Uh, it's interesting. He resuscitates the guy, but he, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and had the bandages all fall off, right? But he actually gives his life for something to do. You know, help him. Let him, you know. So, uh, you know, good works are not the, the root, but they are the fruit, you know. Uh, we don't have to do good stuff to get saved, but he allows us to do good stuff like uh, get rid of some of the stuff that held us back spiritually. But, you know, I'm just going to stop this way. Cheer up. Things are going to get worse. You don't like the way the culture's going? You don't like the world's going? Cheer up. Things are going to get worse. I mean, you're going to look back to December 2018 as the good old days, probably pretty quick the way we're going. Things are going to get worse. But God's got a program to ultimately make them not just a whole lot better, but absolutely perfect. Because the resurrected Christ is going to end history on God's terms. And I think we're going to be part of those folks dressed in white coming down out of heaven with him at the second advent. We're going to see that, and we're going to get to the perfect universe. This is not the best of all possible worlds. One less rape, one less abortion, you got a better world. One less lie, you got a better world. This is probably the best world achievable with creatures making real choices under the sovereignty of God. But he's going to get us to the best of all possible worlds. Evil will have been permitted. Evil will have been defeated. Evil will be forever quarantined. And then we're going to live in a perfect universe forever. And when we lose friends and fathers and mothers and TBFers and we miss them and we wish they weren't missing all this stuff down here, anything they miss will be more than made up for on the back end of Jesus setting up new heavens, new earth. It's going to be incredible. You don't even have categories to think about how great it is. God's not unaware of the stuff my Aunt Margaret's missing or my mom's going to miss or my Uncle Ray missed. But he's got all eternity to to take away those scars. I often say there are some scars you can suffer on earth that don't get healed this side of heaven. And the idea that I don't worry about it, you know, it's no big deal. We all agree differently, but ultimately... All those scars are going to go away in the magnificence of the kingdom that the resurrected Jesus is going to create for us. It's going to be so good, you can't believe it. So cheer up. Cheer up a little bit. Plus, it's Christmas time, right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let this not just be an ancient history lesson for us, but just from the death of our soul, let us realize Jesus has the power of life and death. He's the resurrection and the life. And he, he died for our sins and rose again, but he's able to heal Lazarus, biologically dead. And he's going to usher us into your presence because of his grace and his saving work. And I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart to said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot earn my way to heaven, but I want you to save me. I believe you came to pay for my sin debt. You rose again from the dead and I receive you as my savior. As a believer, I want to honor you and love you and walk with you as my Lord. And uh, if there's anyone here in that position, open their hearts to see and believe. For most of us, just encourage us because, uh, you know, you look at the current events, very, very bleak situation all around us in so many different ways, economically, culturally, morally, sociologically, psychologically, and even spiritually. But we have so much to look forward to. Let, let us not limit what you're doing and your love for us to the now, even though the now is important and it's real, but help us to remember we've got all eternity to look forward to. And that's the ultimate. And that's where you're going to make it all right and all perfect. And we help us to rest in that as we fight the struggles we have to fight right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.